Hello and welcome to a special listener feedback episode of Batman Nightcast, the show that, up to this point, has chronicled the post-crisis on Infinite Earth's adventures of the Dark Knight detective in Batman and Detective Comics. I am Ryan Daly. I'm Chris Franklin. And this episode is something that we promised we would do last year. Uh, And that is, we are going to address the listener feedback from episodes 21 through 24, all of which came out back in August and September of 2019. That is when we started covering two books per episode at the expense of listener feedback. And the reason for that wasn't just to keep the episode length manageable. It had more to do with the timeliness and the scheduling. Those four episodes may have come out over the span of five weeks, but they were all recorded over a period of eight or nine months. So, we will, we, will we take that same approach in the future? Uh, I don't know. That's something that we can discuss later along with the future of this show. For now, we have curated the feedback we received from those four episodes. This is only from the comments left on the Fire and Water website. I didn't go back to Facebook and Twitter to check every like and favorite and share, but we obviously both appreciate the hell out of all of that feedback. For the sake of expediency and sanity, though, we're just reading the website comments. Uh, And we're also not reading every comment that was left on the site. Again, some of it is to save time. Also, a lot of the comments were already responded to, mostly by Chris, when the episodes came in. (laughs) Anything that's not actually be working at work. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) All right, let's get to it. Uh, On episode 21, we covered Batman 410, which was a Max Allen Collins issue with Two-Face, and Detective Comics 577, part 3 of Batman Year 2, That episode received comments from Martin Gray, David Ace Gutierrez, Paul Hicks, Nathaniel Wayne, Ward Hill Terry, Rob Kelly, Siskoid, and Jimmy McGlinchey. Uh, Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, The only thing about Batman teaming up with Joe Chill and using a gun is everything. (laughs) Chill and Leslie Tompkins should never have appeared beyond their first appearances. Heck, much as I enjoyed the Golden Age stuff with Chill's mother and Lee Moxon, the thug who killed the Waynes should never have even been named. He should have never escaped and became the man who Batman never caught, ensuring his stupid crusade never ended. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, I have said that, you know, I, I didn't, I liked the killer being anonymous and leaving that sort of open-ended. For, I'm not sure how diehard I am with that because I've heard a lot of really smart people that I like making an argument of why it didn't matter why Joe Chill was fine that Batman caught him or why he you know he he got himself killed and everything because ultimately that doesn't matter that doesn't change Batman's mission it just sort of reinforces it and I mean there were good stories told with Joe Chill especially that that very first one with you know like what happened to him in the Golden Age and, and how that was told so mm-hmm. uh, I'm kind of of two minds uh, I mean. Obviously, like just how, with how much we didn't like year two, uh, I, w- I would be fine if that had never happened. Right? Yeah, I, I tend to just just give me the the uh, the origin of Batman, where Batman catches up to Chill. This is written by Bill Finger. Mm-hmm. He wrote the origin. He wrote the book into the origin. Let's leave it alone. You know, basically. <laughs> All right, Nathaniel Wayne from the Tough Like a Girl podcast here on the Fire and Water Network, as well as the Council of Geeks YouTube channel, said. I'm a bit of a Todd McFarlane apologist, so yeah, I'm about to do that a bit here. 
You guys are absolutely right that his art is striking and has energy, but depending on how exaggerated the world he's playing in, it doesn't always graft on well. This is part of the admiration I have for Spawn. I honestly think it's a pretty decent book, or at least it was back when I read the thing over 25 years ago. But the genius of it is Todd's self-awareness. I think possibly more than any other hot artist of his generation, Todd had a very good understanding of his own strengths and weaknesses, and I don't just mean in the Liefeld way of avoiding drawing feet. So, when it came time to create his own hero and story from scratch, he made narrative choices that would allow for his artistic strengths to shine. So take the cape. Spawn's cape is easily as absurd as Batman's is in year two, but it's a supernaturally powered costume, so it doesn't have to make physical sense. Todd's faces can often be cartoonish, so the hero has a completely face-obscuring mask, and the major humanoid characters, Tony Twist, the clown, Jason Wynn, are designed to lean into a more cartoonish style. His creatures are so bizarrely proportioned that they shouldn't even be able to stand up, make them demons from hell or for whom the normal rules don't apply. I really think that Todd put a lot of thought into ensuring that he made a character that would allow him to shine as what he did well, and it takes a pretty high degree of self-awareness to do that as cleanly as he did. Of course, he proved himself to be something of an anal polyp in his personal dealings, but that's another conversation. <laughs> uh, and then Nathaniel went on to promote the, D- the TV show Gotham again for like the 90th time, so I'm just going to skip that. <laughs> what do you think of that assessment of uh, Todd McFarlane? Yeah, you know, I think he's got a really good point. I think Todd, I, I, I totally agree with that. He was very smart. He basically designed that universe mm-hmm. to his artistic strengths. I, I mean, and, and to his narrative, I mean, because, you know, he got a lot of flack for when he started writing the ejectiveless Spider-Man title that, that he didn't know how to write basically. And, you know, it's like he, he stretched that he, the original decompressed storyline of that first five part or whatever it was. Um, and he basically, the whole story he came up with for spawn and the artwork, uh, the, the universe he said it in, I mean, it totally fit what Todd could do well and what fans wanted to see from Todd. So yeah, it was very, very smart. So, yeah, I give him credit for that. And now, oddly enough, Todd McFarlane is making DC superhero <laughs> action figures. So, so who, you know, now he's back. He's back with Batman in one way or another. So <laughs> I heard about it. And, and yeah, I agree. I think of of his projects that he's well known for, I think Spawn generally looks the best and feels the most true. I mean, I've. I just I was never as big a fan of of McFarlane's Spider Man. I I didn't like it as much as everybody else to. I honestly I don't like the way he draws Peter Parker. I think his Peter Parker is ugly, but it's yeah. There's just something about that that world. So I think Spawn when I read it feels more natural and and reads better and reads easier than his Spider Man or his Batman. Now that said, I I've only read uh, four maybe four issues of his Spawn, um, but yeah. We got a uh, comment from Ward Hill Terry who said, My complaints regarding year two are still valid and are probably still on the feedbook page for that episode. As far as the Two-Face story, it reads like a really average 70s TV show. Both of the books reviewed this time suffer from their respective authors forcing plot elements into their plots. If Collins insisted that there be a personal connection between Two-Face and Jason Todd, which is really corny, he could have used that as a chance for Batman to instruct Jason in how to be a detective relying on intelligence, not a revenge seeker led by emotions. Instead, he aims for melodrama. 
I cannot defend Dave Cockrum's efforts in this book. Perhaps it was a rush job. I don't think I'll ever defend DiCarlo Zinking. I've never enjoyed any page he worked on. Some of the panels look like he was trying to emulate Jack Kirby, inker Mike Royer, but the lack of energy and backgrounds in the panels don't earn a Kirby shine. Barr's story feels like he's trying to make a jigsaw puzzle using his favorite pieces from 10 different puzzle boxes, plus some Lego pieces he insists belong in the jigsaw. <laughs> so many elements <laughs> have to be crammed in that any development is sacrificed, like the Bruce and Rachel story. The original tale of Joe Chill, no doubt by Bill Finger, is that Batman has been Batman for many years when he sees Chill and recognizes him. Until that moment, he had no idea who he was or if he was alive or dead. His confrontation is both personal and calculated. He is quite prepared to give up being Batman to bring Chill to justice. It's a great story that owes as much to O. Henry as it does to the Pulps. I disagree with Martin that Chill should have remained uncaught, but I don't like to read Batman stories where Joe Chill is a fetish who must be constantly invoked. Batman shouldn't ignore the unsolved mysteries in his career, but he oughtn't to dwell on them either. Finger's story was a nice, neat, well-constructed package. Barr has hot-glued 400 puzzle pieces to it, and it's ugly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that feels a lot like what we said, how we described it, yeah. Yeah, he, he, he took something that was a very, like he said, a very simple story and just threw it in a Cuisinart with tons of other stuff and, and served it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, moving on to episode 22, we covered Batman 411, the second part of the Two-Face story, and Detective 578, the conclusion to Batman Year 2. That episode received comments on the website from Rob Kelly, David Ace Gutierrez, Siskoid, Gothos Mansion, Gold Dragon 71, Brian Linton, Jimmy McGlinchey, and Tim Price. Rob Kelly from this network said, I have to ask, where are these comic scans coming from? They look like they've been stored in some kid's closet for 30 years. Sans bag and board. A visual comment on how you guys feel about the books? <laughs> I think it's more of a visual comment of how I used to take care of my comic books. <laughs> <laughs> Because most of those scans, I think, are mine, if I remember right. Some so of, I think for some of these issues, about half of them were yours, half of them were mine. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like I, I, for a lot of these issues, I did keep in that condition. Uh, they were they were just stored without a bag and board for a long time. Um, and yeah, and I, I think I mentioned this in my. I think I responded to Rob that I was like, Is it, you know, that's that's better than they deserved. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I I remember one time my. Uh, just a brief aside, my uh, sister's first husband, he came over to the house when I still lived at home with my parents with uh, with his brother who was who lived out of state but was in to visit him. And uh, they both collected comics and they were real they were real serious about like collecting like runs like like my brother in law at the time had like the all the Swamp Thing appearances, all the Punisher appearances, even the first appearances. And um, so, you know, he had some key comics and uh when he saw how I had my comics just kind of like, you know, they were in bags, but they were just kind of stacked up inside this like cabinet thing. He was just him and his brother were just like shaking their head at me. So <laughs> I'm like, well, hey, man, I don't have like room for all these boxes and things. You know, I'm a kid living in my parents house. I don't you know. So it's it's a, but I, I remember like feeling shamed all of a sudden. I'm like, well, what? I didn't think it was that bad. You know. <laughs> Uh, we got a comment from David A. Scudieras. I can't believe I really liked your two. I guess being 13 was the key. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we had other people, like, when we first started this, they're like, oh, we can't wait till you get to Batman Year Two. We really liked that story. And I'm like, seriously? You did? You want to speak about that again? <laughs> did you like Year Two more than Year One? You want to take another try? 
<laughs> I, did, I didn't like it more than year one. But I liked it more before we did this than I do now. I mean, it's like examining this, uh, you know, it, it, and unfortunately really brought to, to, to fore the, the problems with it. it it's like now I really I, I had kind of fell out of love with it a little bit since, you know, my initial reading at about the same age that David's speaking of. But, yeah, it, it definitely is now. So, yeah, <laughs> every comic is better until you read it. Right. <laughs> uh, Siskoid from here on our network uh, covering many shows, he said, so how much of year two was supposed to reconcile the idea of the Golden Age Batman sporting a gun? It feels a little like it was woven to explore the idea that the Bat evidently used guns once but rejected them. Was that in Barr's head at all, you think? While Barr was a good mystery writer, I never liked his action-oriented stuff. It's possible you might have heard the rumors of my active disdain for his Batman and the Outsiders. It's not a very well-kept secret. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I like a lot of like Bar- Mike Barr's uh, mystery stuff. Um, he uh, he wrote that uh, was the elongated man story in Detective Five Hundred. Um, yeah, I, I, he he was a he was a, always a solid mystery writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, the bar I've enjoyed everything else from the bar run with Alan Davis. It's year two where it all kind of starts to fall apart for me. But I do think that that initially the idea was to to show up that to reconcile the Golden Age Batman carrying a gun. It just it just developed into something way beyond that at some point. <laughs> Uh, Gothos Mansion said, For the life of me, I don't know why Colin's Batman run turned out so badly. On the surface, he would seem a great choice to be a Batman writer. I've read some of his prose and seen some movies where he did the screenplay and the guy can write. He is very good at mysteries and hard-boiled stories. Colin's even finished some of Mickey Spillane's uncompleted Mike Hammer manuscript. While I wouldn't want, although unfortunately we've often since gotten, a Batman that is hardcore as Mike Hammer, the Hammer stuff showed that Collins could have written a gritty Batman. He just didn't. Colin's run isn't fun either. It's just confusing. As for Barr, <laughs> yeah, it is that. Uh, as for Barr, I liked a lot of his Brave and the Bold stories. I can't really think of an issue he wrote that was bad. I wonder if we Bat fans cut him slack because of how awesome Player on the Other Side was. It is my favorite Batman story of the 80s that wasn't written by Len Wein or Alan Brenner. On the other hand, in Batman the Outsiders, Batman was on his way to being unlikable. I think Barr's stories on Detective are pretty hit and miss. I hate the Joker Catwoman story, but like most of the others except for year two. Let's see. Batman is thinking about killing villains, so he decides that another guy who is killing villains needs to be taken down. To stop him, <laughs> Batman teams with the killer who started his crusade in the first place. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Plus, Batman sh- should have some nobility, and his trying to seduce a potential nun away from her calling just makes him seem like a sleaze. Year two is a prime example of nutsoid Batman that is as bad as the criminals. That may be why I hate it so. I admit I think my personal feelings on Barr may interfere with my enjoyment of his stories now. I remember how he attacked L.O. Sears, who didn't agree with his political beliefs in Batman and the Outsiders, and he comes across as pretty arrogant in interviews. I used to enjoy his maze agency, but now, like his bad-o and detective runs, it may be because I enjoyed the art so much. He set the male true crime writer up as a Mary Sue, and you can tell Barr identified with him. Let's not forget that Barr is technically to blame for Damian Wayne, too, and Damian may be the only DC character I hate more than Green Arrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
uh, but he's talking LOC LOCers. He was he was talking about the letter column writers because Bard like like literally gotten like fights with the the people who wrote into into Batman the Outsiders, especially over oddly enough over uh, you know we we recently talked about a Bob Haney uh, story with Black Canary uh, Bob Haney uh, Batman Metamorpho story yeah. that. Uh, that fans were like, well, Metamorpho knows that Bruce Wayne's Batman. And, and, and Bart's like, that story does not count in continuity. And the other's like, oh, yes, it does. And then it got into this, yeah, he had this kind of uh, passive aggressive, mostly aggressive relationship with the people that were writing into his comic book. <laughs> I have to confess, I just figured out, or like just kind of clicked for me, Gothos Mansion's name last night. Because oh, really? I I reread the story the Demon of Gothos Mansion in the uh, the Treasury uh, the the Batman Strange Adventure Batman Strange Cases the Treasury mm. um, okay it, it was from Batman two twenty seven I want to say right um, it's the one where Neil Adams redid the, the redid classic the cover. yeah the, the classic Batman cover um, yeah it's mm-hmm. a, yeah Irv Novak uh, story on the inside but yeah the Demon of Gothos Mansion and I was reading that I was like oh yeah duh that's where his name comes from and I should have known that because <laughs> I knew the story from a long time ago but. It's, uh, okay, we got a comment from Jimmy McGlinchey who said, I don't know if you were aware, but Peter Tomasi has brought back the Reaper in the latest Detective Comics annual. The new Reaper is the previously unmentioned son of Judson Caspian, who has reinvented the concept of the Reaper along the lines of Batman Incorporated, a Reaper in every country. He escaped at the end of the story and will no doubt return as part of Tomasi's run on Detective Comics. Uh, I didn't know that. Uh, I'm I'm not a huge fan of Peter Tomasi's writing. I like him more as an editor uh, when he was working on the Green Lantern books. I do like. I, mean, I am intrigued at the idea of like having a sort of like a Batman Incorporated style, like th- that particular version of a villain in every country. That's kind of interesting. So is is year two back in continuity? <laughs> DC has. I mean, I have never. DC's continuity has been a joke for a long time, but I have never seen it in the jumbled mess it is today. I don't even try anymore. I mean, it's like doomsday clock and now they're like, they're supposed to be like rebooting it again. And, and wonder woman, like now, now they're following the lead of wonder woman from the movies where she's been around since world war one. And which is fine. That part's fine. But it's just like, I don't think anybody has any idea of what I mean, that Bob Haney, if he was still with us would be, would fit right in with, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. the lack of continuity in the in, in the comics. So, <laughs> but that's I actually do like the idea of a international uh, group of Reapers. It kind of makes sense that I could even see Judson Caspian setting that up. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's actually sounds pretty cool. I'm gonna have to look into that. So uh, Tim Price wrote in to say blocking bullets with size didn't bother me back then because bars, katana, and the outsiders blocked bullets with their sword in every issue for years. It's completely unrealistic. One of those things which superheroes do: block bullets with bracelets, catch with bare hands, dodge with ease, whatever. Bullets just ain't no big deal to the costume crowd. <laughs> Fair enough. It's hard to argue. Yeah, I guess so. I, I kind of tend to think, though, you know, Wonder Woman, she's got super speed and, you know, and uh, so she can, you know, if you got super speed, blocking things are easier. If you don't have super speed, <laughs> I got a little problem with blocking bullets with anything. I'm sorry, <laughs> I, you know. But <laughs> Episode 23, we covered Batman 412, Max Allen Collins' last issue, as well as an interview with him about that run. Also, Detective 579, which featured Norm Brayfogle on art. 
The episode got comments from Martin Gray, Professor Allen, Gold Dragon 71, Chris Lydon, Chuck Coletta, Gothos Mansion, Noah Tarnow, Ward Hill Terry, Rob Kelly, Tim Price, Siskoid, and Jimmy McGlinchey. Martin Gray said, Great first half of the episode. Batman and Robin listen to bells every Sunday? What a load of clappertrap. Ah, oh, with the puns. But, but this is the best Collins issue. It underlines what we all know at heart. Mimes are evil. It's hilarious, it's hilarious that there are enough mimes and clowns hanging around Gotham that the GCPD could quickly put a lineup together. You'd think the city would ban clowns to make the Joker easier to spot. <laughs> yeah, where do they put together a, a police lineup of mimes and clowns? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that goes back to the whole thing of how we thought, you know, Bruce Wayne should shut down anything to do with clowns, fun houses, anything with the number two, uh, birds, every you know, puzzles. every toy factory in the warehouse district. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network said, first, let me reveal my bias. Mark Sweeney and I covered a few issues of Max Allen Collins' excellent mystery series a few years ago, and Collins listened to the episodes and provided interesting and specific feedback to us. He seemed like a nice fella, and I have become a fanboy of his. In retrospect, you can see the logic of inviting him to write Batman. He had done Dick Tracy for a while, and Mystery was an award-winning mystery series. And although it was more than a decade away, Road to Perdition was excellent. I enjoy his prose novels featuring the character Quarry. The guy can write detective and crime stories. But it turns out that Batman isn't just another detective and crime story. As he would say, I'm Batman. And what Collins gave us in these issues was some pretty decent Dick Tracy stories with decent Dick Tracy villains. But Batman isn't Dick Tracy. What sounded like a great fit was, in fact, a complete misfit. I don't hate these as much as you two do, but again, I'm inclined to like Collins. I do recognize that these aren't good as Batman stories, however. So what do you think about that? I, I mean, yeah, I agree with what he was saying. And I've, I've seen other Collins stuff that is fine to good. I mean, yeah, it, it's kind of like the same refrain that we were saying since the beginning of his on paper, his resume was like, yeah, this guy should be a great Batman writer. That's why Denny O'Neill sought him out and got him. So it's just kind of inexplicable that it went as badly as it did. <laughs> like, like, why? Like, even after even after the interview, I still have trouble grappling with, like, why? Like, did you just go against all of your natural instincts or what it was? But, like, I, yeah, that that resume you would think would have been a great Batman writer, and it just turned out some crap. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, and and again, you know, we don't we don't want to beat up on Denny O'Neill. Of course, he's a legend. He's done he's done a lot for comics in general and Batman in particular. But I do think that his very loose editorial hand, you know, Max Allen Collins hadn't written superhero comics before. He should have had a, taken a stronger hand with him and kind of helped him uh, on the job, you know, at least at first. Mm-hmm. And and he didn't. He basically turned him loose and. The results are, are what we covered, so because yeah. <laughs> I think he can definitely do, obviously, do good work elsewhere. So, uh, yeah. Gold Dragon seventy one said, "I hadn't read these comics when they first came out. However, this one was tied into something I was into. Dragnet, starring Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks, had just come out in the theaters, and one of the cable channels was airing a marathon of old Dragnet episodes." 
Well, all these years later, I discovered that Jack Webb had appeared on Johnny Carson in a skit called The Copped Clapper Caper. Now, when I first read this issue on Comixology, and knowing Jason Todd was infamous for bad puns and jokes, I originally thought that this was just Jason being silly. However, having seen the Clapper Caper skit with Carson and Webb, I had to laugh out loud that Jason was probably spending his downtime going to see Dragnet and watching old episodes on TV like I was. Jason must have seen the Carson Webb skit somewhere along the way. <laughs> now that's obscure. I hadn't thought of Dragnet with Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks in <laughs> in years. But once I read that, I had the rap from that that they did. <laughs> stuck. At, yes, Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd rapped uh, from the Dragnet movie. And I actually have it in my head going right now. It's It's been in there for 30 years. And <laughs> thanks, Gold Dragon 71, for bringing that back. I really do appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I assume Tom Hanks raps in the Mr. Rogers movie, too. So <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> Chris Lydon said, This issue of Batman always reminded me of a hostess ad, <laughs> except it was less interesting than most of them. A boring story with lackluster art. Oh, my gosh, that totally does make sense. I can see that now. Uh <laughs> I was lucky enough to meet Bray Fogle at a small convention in Boston well over a decade ago. He seemed like a nice, soft-spoken man who was very gracious with my gushing. Daniel O'Neill was at the same con, and I was happy to meet him as well. Well, that's very cool. That's, that's cool that you got to meet Norm Bray Fogle and Daniel O'Neill. But, yeah, the, the hostess ad thing, yeah, the, the, uh, the mime. <laughs> the mime is totally a hostess ad, Billy. <laughs> Chuck Coletta said, Collins was writing the Dick Tracy strip back when I became a hardcore fan of the detective. The story of the punk rockers kidnapping a pregnant Tess and the Angel Top story of her seeking revenge on Flat Top are good fun. Collins has been writing the in-depth intros for the IDW Dick Tracy hardcover collections. I did get the chance to get Norm Brayfogle's autograph at the Akron Comic Con several years ago. Instead of signing a bat book, I had him sign one of his Archie, The Married Life volumes. It's interesting to see him working in a more realistic and down-to-earth style without all the superhero razzmatazz. He seemed like a nice, unassuming guy. I wish I'd told him about my love for his Batman, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, again, I he's like one of the few creators that I, I was really broken up when he died because i thought you know with with you know revisiting his material for the show and kind of thinking you know maybe if i got the chance to meet him you know maybe we'd have him on the show or something like that and but yeah sucks what happened so yeah i mean of course it's it's tragic that that norm bray fogel passed as young as he did and and uh but yeah i i, I was i would have loved to have reached out to him and and uh, met him at a con, had him on the show. It, it, uh, yeah, he's definitely he was definitely on the list of people that if he had been at a show that I was anywhere near, I would have went out of my way to get to that show to meet him. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's just a real shame. Yeah. Uh, Noah Ternow said, "I agree that Conlon's Batman was on the whole very lackluster, but I strongly disagree that this was his best story. I actually think that his Penguin Tale and Batman Annual Number Eleven is excellent with a very nice Silver Age flavor." that would fit in perfectly with the Bar Davis run you gush about. Of course, that story was helped immensely by the artist, Mr. Frickin' Brayfogle, <laughs> which takes us to the second half of this episode. I never get tired of looking at, discussing, and analyzing this guy's work, and he clearly got Batman right out of the gate. Such a perfect synthesis of atmosphere and action. He will always be my Batman artist. By the way, in 1996, Collins wrote a prestige format Elseworlds one-shot, Scar of the Bat, an Untouchables riff drawn by Eduardo Barreto. Any thoughts on this? Any better than his run? 
uh, you know, that's one of the that's one of the Elseworlds that I, I, I haven't read. That's when they were really starting to crank out Elseworlds. Like it seemed like one came out a month and they were always five bucks a pop back, you know, back when five bucks a pop for a comic was high or six or for a prestige comic. And I just honestly quit buying them. I just I could I couldn't keep up with them. And they were too expensive. And I only bought the ones that really jumped out of me i love eduardo beretta but uh, honestly max allen collins name on it probably stopped me from buying it <laughs> yeah i haven't read it either um the putting it in more of a period setting and, and certainly getting eduardo beretto i mean maybe if i saw it in the wild for a little bit cheaper i might be inclined to check it out um but yeah i don't i don't think i have it in my collection and i haven't read it so yeah eduardo beretto actually drew quite a few elseworlds he drew the uh, Master of the Future, the sequel to Gotham by Gaslight, and he drew that Speeding Bullets with Superman, where Superman and Batman are merged, basically. Um, and and yeah, I, I don't know that we say that 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 was Colin's best Batman story. Now clearly, the he's right. The Penguin story in Batman Annual Number Eleven is the best right. story that he did. I, I, not just the story, but the the combination of story and art. It's the best package we got from from Collins. Yeah. Uh, which that's not his fault. That's editorial. But yeah, it's definitely the best. Ward Hill Terry said, not long after you posted this, Mark Evanier posted his 25 more things I learned about the comic book industry since I got into it in 1970. The list included 79. Some of the people who did poor work in comics may not have been very talented, but they were the best person the editor could get at the time and better than the alternative. 82. When there are too many different interpretations of a character out there, none of them is the right one, especially when it's Batman. I think the synchronicity is appropriate. Editor O'Neill got his books out on time, but the creators involved did not produce their masterpieces with these particular comics. I haven't read either of these, but your descriptions of the story elements had me groaning. Church bells? Most churches, even in the 1980s, use electronic chimes. Why that particular bell is the noise that pushes the crime mime over the edge, when there must be so many other more mechanical sounds in Gotham. If she had disabled all of the gas-powered leaf blowers, I would silently applaud her. <laughs> I like that he called her the crime mime. <laughs> the crime mime. <laughs> that might be a better ma- name for her, the crime mime. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, leave it. Uh, Mark Evaneers always has good insight on mm-hmm. on uh, well, pretty much everything, but uh, <laughs> comics in particularly <laughs> and TV writing and things. Um, Siskoid from our network wrote in, "Love the insights we get into Colin's ego with that interview. It was kind of worth it having you guys whine and moan through these issues because we get this good a diluted payoff." Here's the thing. It's as important to examine what didn't work as what did, and Batman post-crisis growing pains are part of the journey. I've never been disappointed with Nightcast, even when the hosts were disappointed with the comics. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's that. good, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right, and last, episode 24 covered Batman 413, a one-off with a samurai and ninja thing, and Detective 580, the first of yet another two-faced two-parter. We got comments from Siskoid, Dan Doherty, Gothos Mansion, Martin Gray, Lizanne Oswalt, Jimmy McGlinchey, Tim Price, Ward Hill Terry, and Shag. Gothos Mansion wrote in, When I bought Detective 580 off the stands, it was a nice history lesson for me. I didn't know anything about the Paul Sloan Two-Face at the time. I also hadn't read the newspaper strip story where Harvey Two-Face was an actor. 
Really cool that Bill Finger, probably could have been someone else, I guess, managed to merge the actor Two-Face into the regular Batman storyline with Sloan. Honestly, it was a lot better than Batman Year Two, although I agree it didn't match up to some of Barr's other stuff. I did like it better than the Joker Catwoman story, which I hated. Also, in retrospect, it does suffer in comparison to what comes after it, too. Uh, Lizanne Oswalt said, The Batman cover is fine. The samurai is interesting. The ninja mask is cool, but ninjas never existed as we see them. The costume came from Japanese plays that had the men in black look to move set pieces and the audience learned to ignore them. Thus, when one acted as a ninja, it shocked the crowd. Real ninjas were just anyone trained to kill, mostly wearing the clothes of the time since someone running around in all black would be noted. Samurai are a lot closer, mostly soldiers, but well-trained and changed into the honor-bound warriors with the poems and code of Bushido. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know any of that honestly. But it, I kind of, I kind of don't like the fact that ninjas didn't really wear that. So. <laughs> <laughs> the eighties lied to me. <laughs> the hell you say? <laughs> Snake Eyes was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Uh, Tim Tim Price wrote in so you want to talk about Batman now I guess a hilarious moment because dang it you guys were having such an interesting conversation about the other comics from this month I was fine if you wanted to keep going a little longer and oh my goodness the new Cap Captain storyline is a classic anyone else notice the parallel in JLA Avengers when Superman had Mjolnir briefly commenting he could barely control it like Cap did in that issue of Thor so awesome Hey, I guess there's more Thor to discuss. What else we have Simonson's curse on that comics cover? What? <laughs> oh, that's the samurai. Never mind. I read it back then and had forgotten this issue enough to think Dwyer's first pro work was on Cap. It's a nice preview of what's to come from him. And I'll take a Joe Duffy story anytime. I need to go hunting for more of her stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one where I famously didn't like the Walt Simonson cover and got grief about it, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, that new Cap Captain storyline is, is is definitely a classic, and I think we're about to get a version of that in live action on uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier from the looks of things, since okay. they have cast a actor to play John Walker. So right. that should be interesting. <laughs> Uh, Ward Hill Terry said, Now that we don't have Mike W. Barr to kick around anymore, I'd like to share some thoughts. First, the Batman and Robin thing. This was rather a novelty at the time. Batman and Detective Comics had featured the title character without his sensational character find of 1940 for a decade and a half. With the editorial decision to return to the dynamic duo, Barr, etc., went back to the well and tried to create their own stories in the tradition of Finger, Sprang, and Infantino. This not only jarred with what we Batman readers had been used to, but joined with the decision to recast Jason Todd, the carefully established world of Batman, lost its cohesiveness. I accept that I am a pre-crisis DC fan, and that it's easy to blame the crisis for anything one doesn't like about DC Comics. In the case of Batman, the lack of a definitive starting over point muddied the waters for too long. For instance, many of the Batman and Robin stories you've covered on this podcast have been pretty generic Batman and Robin stories with a default Robin, i.e. Dick Grayson's Robin. Editor O'Neill and his writers never convincingly established a personality for their Robin or his relationships with Batman, Alfred, Gordon, etc., 
which leads me to my major complaint about Barr's Batman stories. There were no personalities. Barr likes writing mysteries. He did nothing with the characters, which was a big waste of the legacy he took on. Starting in the late 1970s, the editors, Levitz and Ween, and writers, Englehart, Ween, Conway, carefully established and fleshed out characters like Bruce Wayne, Dick Grayson, Jim Gordon, Selina Kyle, etc., They introduced new characters that became permanent fixtures of Batman's world, like Lucia Fox, Julia Pennyworth, Arthur Reeves, Harvey Bullock, Hamilton Hill, etc. Ween was particularly adept at introducing characters and laying down blueprints for future issues in the stories. Barr did not do any of this. That may have been a deliberate choice in order to create timeless stories, but I missed that sense of a greater Gotham. Even Doug Munch, though I did not care for his bat tales, explored the relationship of Bruce, Jason, and the Gotham City Social Works office. They had a Jason Todd, written by Conway, Munch, and even Alan Moore for one story. He had a distinct character and personality. Moore got him particularly well. They introduced a new Jason Todd, and nobody, least of all the readers, knew anything about him. His dad was killed by Two-Face? He never knew that? Was he close to his dad? Did his dad love him? Did his dad teach him how to steal? Did his dad abandon him? Anything? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think... From the beginning, it's hard for me to say that his Batman and Robin had no personality because right from the beginning of the bar run, when we see Batman going into the bar and like threatening, uh, like the 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 middleman guy, I forget his name, and just yeah, and and just sort of having more like that sort of like kind of like smart out kind of banter with them, I think that sort of suggests a little bit more of a personality than what Ward is saying, but. I definitely agree. Like once they once they recreate Jason, he is just like the the default. He's just a clone of 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 Dick Grayson in a lot of ways. Like even though like kind of giving him a new origin, they don't really give him that attitude or make him unique until you know Jim Starlin would come around and start kind of making him a jerk <laughs> when when they right. start kind of making him the the kind of kid that you would want to get rid of. Yeah, it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy with Jason. Mm-hmm. Nobody liked the new origin. And like Starlin has said in, in an interview I did with him in Back Issue Magazine that he didn't um, that he didn't like Robin, period. He didn't care what Robin it was. He just didn't like the notion of Robin. And he basically steered into the fact that he didn't, <laughs> he didn't like Robin, so he wrote him in a way that nobody's going to like Robin. But yeah, I, I, I think, again, we have to go back to – the very loose editorial hand because, I mean, we didn't get a consistent portrayal of any of these characters across the two titles, really. I mean, that's that that's I mean, ultimately, again, hate to bag on it, but it ultimately goes back to, to the early days of Denny O'Neill being the Batman editor. So mm-hmm. got one uh, got a comment from a shag, our buddy shag on the network. Uh, maybe you addressed this on the show, but I just read this issue for myself. Have you considered leaping ahead and covering retroactive 1980s Batman? It's a Mike W. Barr tale featuring the Reaper, Batman, and Jason Todd. It's clearly intended to slot in retroactively right after year two. Just a thought. Loving the show. Uh, we had thought about that. I did buy that book and read it. It wasn't bad. Uh, I think didn't I know Jerry Bingham like drew the cover. I th- if I if I remember right, I think he drew the cover. Or I can't remember, but uh, it was pretty good. I you know I would if we were going to do that, I'd do full circle then maybe or do that in full circle, whichever should come first. I don't know, but I guess 
if it's got Jason, then technically Full Circle should come first because Dick's Robin in Full Circle and then do that one. But but now we hadn't really talked about that, I don't think. so. Well, I mean, that, that sort of goes to the future of this podcast because a lot of people have made suggestions about what we should cover. And a whole lot of people, like, you know, in, in previous years when we were – going through the real, the nadir of the Collins run and some of the, the bad stuff of Batman Year 2, a lot of people were like, why don't you just skip this? Why don't you just jump ahead to the Brayfogle issues or cover something that you like? And I had been adamant that no, no, the, this is what this podcast has to be. We're doing the index show of Batman and Detective Comics after the crisis, and we're going to just keep on plowing through this, and if the stories suck, then they suck, and who cares? We're just going to keep on doing it. And the result of that attitude is we we haven't been very consistent with this show um, <laughs> because you know my schedule got really thrown off when when Reese was born and then once I was able to start kind of going back to doing things regularly then your schedule kind of get thrown off because of like a, a work situation and then you and Rob starting Superman movie minute and I was like hey hey Chris you could cover that Superman movie that you love. Or you could cover some crappy Batman books with me. What would you rather? Uh, so, uh, so that was kind of tough to, to make the decision. And so it really looked like, I was like, I, I don't know. Like, like once we could get into the Norm Brayfogle era of this book, then that would be good. But we're also covering the Batman issues that aren't as good. And... And it just became really frustrating and, and seeing the way Batman and his family were treated in other media. I was just in a very just bleak place and not wanting to talk about this at all. And then, just you know, a few days ago as of this recording, Chris shoots me a text. He's like, hey, what if we just talked about some other Batman books? What if we just talked about some Marshall Rogers comics or Neil Adams comics or Dick Sprang or, or something else? And I thought about it for all of Two seconds. <laughs> and I was like, yes. Because I do love Batman. And I want to enjoy Batman. He has always been my favorite superhero. But he hasn't been for a long time. Because I've been stuck in bottom-feeding dregs of Batman stories and what it, what it felt like. I was like, but yeah, absolutely. Like, why does the mantra of find your joy apply to every podcast but this one? <laughs> it seems like, like right. why, why are we forcing ourselves to do this stuff when there's really no reason? We're not on anybody else's schedule or anybody's timeline. We're not trying to fill somebody else's arbitrary like needs for this. It's like, this should be ours and we should have fun with it. So, And, and it goes with, like, somebody posted on Twitter who is your you know your Mount Rushmore of Batman artists or something like that and I was reading through the list and I was like oh yeah that's a great artist that I'm never going to cover on Nightcast oh that's another one that I'll never see on Nightcast these are great yeah yeah and I I made up my own list not necessarily of of who I think are the greatest but my personal favorites and it was like one of them was Norm Brayfogle okay one of them was Jim Aparo but his best stuff is from the Brave and the Bold like earlier and it's like okay we're not going to go to that Mazzuchelli is on there who were just even with just his four issues we've already done that and Marshall Rogers was the fourth one I was like we're not going to cover those um and I do think Neil Adams would be my number five uh if they were five faces on Mount Rushmore um, but I was just like, okay, well, that really is kind of depressing that there's going to be so such a limited amount of the Batman that I love going forward on this podcast. So when you were like, 
hey, let's just cover the Batman stuff that we do like. I'm like, yes, yes, absolutely, yes, let's do that. <laughs> so, right, uh, I, 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 I had this thought. I was, we had talked about, you know, uh, we, you know, you asked me if I wanted to do that, uh, or I volunteered to do that Brave and the Bold uh, to cover the Black Canary story with you, and it got me thinking, you know, we got Nick Cardi on that and get to talk about his art and stuff, and it got me thinking, it's like, you know, it really would be fun to talk about Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams and Englehart and Rogers and, and, and Grant Brayfogle and still talk yeah, about yeah. them because that's a great run. Uh, and, 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 and the other, you know, great Batman, uh, Bill Fanger and Dick Sprang or, you know, uh, but, but, you know, kind of, I kind of pitched it and, and this is no offense to, to Michael and, and Andy that, that do overlook dark Knight, the opposite of the overlook dark Knight. <laughs> Let's talk about the Batman stories. Everybody, it's like these are the best, but 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 nobody in our circles is talking about them, right? You know, right. so it's like it's like I mean, I'm sure there are Batman podcasts elsewhere that that are talking have talked about these stories, and other people have covered them. But as far as a show dedicated to covering like the best runs of Batman, you know, uh, and a random selection of the best runs of Batman, there's not a show like that that in, at least in our immediate circles that I know of. So mm-hmm. uh, so why not? And even if there is. Your, your our perspective will be different. So right, right, again, exactly. yeah, let, let's have some fun with this. Let's find our joy, and let's not worry about covering comics that <laughs> that we really don't want to cover. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. That's fine. I I don't know why I was so focused on making this show something that it didn't need to be. Um, but yeah, so going forward, like this is going to be the new direction, and we'll we'll do the show as often as we can. And I think just having this sort of rejuvenated love for the material will make us more inclined to want. To come back tentatively and i don't know if this will change shape over the course of the show but what we're kind of been thinking about is for one episode we'll take two neil adams books um and maybe they'll be connected maybe they won't we, we don't really know but we'll take two so that we can, can kind of give a spotlight of that particular thing and then the next episode we'll take two marshall rogers books and then an episode after that two norm brayfogle books um, and then we'll kind of cycle back and go back to Adams or Rogers or Brayfield. I think those are the three artists that I really want to spend a lot of time with. But mm. we can come up, like you mentioned, like the that two-parter that uh, Walt Simonson did before Marshall Rogers came aboard. Um, mm-hmm. And going back to do some like earlier uh, Dick Sprang stuff like that or you know even some of the Silver Age thing. I mean we've got a ton of stuff that we can explore. Um, and I think what we'd really like to do is after we kind of get a foothold and sort of establish the, sort of the new look Batman Nightcast as, as it's going to be, um, <laughs> we might throw it out to uh, some of our Patreon subscribers too. And we'll, we can put a poll up on the Patreon say, hey, what do you want the next episode to cover? Rogers issues, Adams issues, Brayfogle issues, other um, and you guys can kind of let us know and kind of have a little bit more ownership of, of this podcast, too, because there's a lot that we can't cover. And, and when you suggested that, I went from not wanting to think about Batman for a while to all of a sudden, like, yes. And I, I read, like, 15 Batman comics in the last couple of days just from from these different <laughs> creators. And I was like, oh, man, I'd like to talk about this. So, Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm glad I'm glad I, uh, you know, I, and I almost didn't send you that message because I'm like, you know, I, I, I don't know if Ryan's going to be up for this. And, and I don't I really, you know, it's like this this nightcast was more of you coming to me saying, hey, you want to do this show about Batman? So you've all and you've always done all the editing and stuff. So, you know, you're you're it's more your baby overall. And I, I so I, I kind of felt weird suggesting it to you, but I'm glad I did because I I'm glad that you that it that it unlocked your your joy for Batman again. <laughs> 
Now uh, all I need is for the Matt Reeves movie not to suck. Cause <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at firewaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at SupermatesPodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Every review helps iTunes push this podcast to a wider audience. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Do you remember?